I forgot which one of my toothbrushes I'm using. Okay, welcome to episode 17 of The Failure Show. I'm Ben Frank. And I'm Ida Knox. Yeah, I just, uh, yesterday I just got back from Singapore for a business trip. Yeah. How was it? It was, it was fun. I had never been there before and it was, it is very different from China. Did you there. business successfully? Yeah, I think it was, it was mostly just sitting down in a lot of meetings. It was a trade show. I don't really know what that means. You know, like, you know, like one of those things like at a big expo hall and you just have like different vendors and different like companies. Like Maker Faire? <laughs> what, what is that? Okay, never mind. Okay. Like, that's where people like show off lots of different like tech and stuff. And okay. Yeah, it sounds similar? like a, yeah, similar? yeah, it sounds like a similar type of thing. Yeah, okay. this is for the attractions industry. Yeah, okay. So similar but different. Yeah. Um, so yeah, a lot of meetings, but I uh, had the chance to do uh, a comedy show there, which yeah, was fun. Yeah, how was it? It was uh, it was good. It was one of the, like the better rooms in uh, in Asia. The, the, the what comedy. what made it a better room? I've never been to Singapore. Well, so so it's interesting because it's a really it's technically it's a bar gig, like it's in a bar, but everyone coming to that bar is coming there for comedy. So that's. So it's not like a bar gig at right, all. Right, right. It's not like a bar gig at all. But yeah, for those, for people who don't go to stand up, it's like a comedy show with a bar versus being a bar gig. Yeah, because okay. you, yeah, yeah, because usually when uh, stand up comedy shows are held in bars, there are a few people there for the comedy, and most of the people are just there to drink and be loud or yeah, watch, you know, some, you know, sports or whatever. And uh, it's, but, but basically. Yeah, it's 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 a bar gig, but everyone going there is going there for the comedy. But it was actually it was less attended than it normally is because I think there was a Singapore versus Argentina soccer match happening the same night. Is soccer big in Singapore? I don't know if it's that big. I, I, I mean, I think it's kind of generally popular. Like it's generally popular anywhere. I don't know if it's more popular than it is in other countries. Fair enough. But. But you know, Argentina is a prominent team, so it's like a big deal for Argentina to come to Singapore. Oh and play yeah, like that's true. That's the Singapore true. Um, national team. So, so there were only I'm going to say only like forty or fifty people at the show, that's which is still a pretty good show, right? Which is still a good show. But they were telling me, and I've heard this from other sources as well, that this particular show on a Tuesday night in Singapore usually gets like 120 or 130 people crammed into this Jesus. bar. So the guy who promotes the show is one of the bigger, bigger showrunners in Asia was telling me, he's like, yeah, this is the least amount of people we've had at the show in six years. Oh, wow. Perfect timing. Thank I know, you. right? <laughs> yeah. And I was, I was opening there again for <laughs> Joe Mackey, who we had in, um, yeah, he was in Shanghai yeah, in China. Yeah. Who we had on a China tour for Kung Fu Comedy the week before. So that was... That's that kind of fun. We had a pretty decent crowd at the KFK showcase last night. Ran- yeah. Randomly. Yeah. We weren't, yeah, we weren't, weren't expecting it. No, we really weren't, but it was pretty good. Yeah. They, and they were, like, hot. Like, they laughed at, like, you know, everything. Was, okay. Yeah, like, it was good. They were, like, an, an easy an easy crowd. Good. It just, yeah, one of those, one of those little uh, confidence builders. <laughs> yeah, where you're like, wow, my name is funny, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, like, you're like, I'm Ida. Like, <laughs> <laughs> She's great. Oh, my God. Wow, yeah. love love that girl. Absolutely. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, Singapore was fun. It's also very, um, it was interesting because I've been 
I obviously haven't been to every major city in East Asia, but I've been to a bunch of them. You have been to a bunch. Been to a bunch. Um, And, like, one thing that you can say about most large East Asian cities is that they're very homogeneous in terms of the people, for the most part. Yeah, that's pretty true. Um, Singapore is not? Singapore is not. Singapore is a melting pot. Huh. Like, it is... You know, you see a lot of people there who are of Chinese descent or East Asian or Southeast Asian... Uh, but you also see a ton of Indian people and a ton of Westerners. Huh. And it's like... A I guess re- that makes sense. I Maybe I should go. Yeah, it's a it's a relatively even split. Like, I think if you if you just kind of looked at the people were, who were around and didn't know where you were, it would be very hard to figure it out. Hmm. I think I'd like it there. Yeah, it's like very, yeah, very diverse in terms of the, the, the kinds of people you just see walking around. Um and also, things are very nice there, but I was glad I was there on business and not uh, for my own personal travel, because it is fairly expensive. Oh, well, never mind. I don't think I'd like it there at all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was, it was cool. It was fun. Glad I, glad I had the opportunity to, yeah. to go there. All right. Should we, uh, should, we get, should we get into fail or pass? Yeah, I think we should. I'm nervous today because it's my, it's my episode. So. Yeah, yeah. It's Ida's episode, so we actually we don't have a, a real guest. Okay, all right. Hang in there. Hey, I wasn't a real guest either during my episode. That's true. You weren't. We have a host guest, which is barely a guest at all. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, let's, uh, let's get into fail or pass. Fail or pass. Hey, let's... Uh, Get started with fail or pass. Yeah, let's do it. How, how upset are you going to get today, Ida? I don't know. It depends on what your story is. Mine is just marginally interesting. Okay. Um, my, not rage-inducing. Not rage-inducing? That's yeah. That could be good. My story actually comes from the area where you will be moving to, the Pacific Northwest. Oh, let's start with yours then. Olympia, Washington. Okay. Um, the, the title of the article from the New York Times, as to be expected... <laughs> Um, a campus argument goes viral. Now the college is under siege. Oh no, it's not my college, is it? No, it's not. Okay. No, no. Which isn't an Olympia, it's not so a, I should know that. Yeah, I was, I, was, I was gonna say, you should know where you're, where you're going. Oh um, god. But okay. anyway, so this, it comes from Evergreen State College, which okay. basically because of a, a controversy that had happened, that happened, had to hold its commencement 30 miles from campus at a rented baseball stadium where everyone had to pass through metal detectors. Now I will tell you what the... Um, yeah, what's the controversy? The controversy that happened here was... So basically, this um, this university has... Uh, or the, this college. It's actually a... It's like a small liberal arts college, it seems. Is it where, private or public? Um, yeah. I'm guessing... I'll look it up. I'm guessing it it's called? public because it's... It's Evergreen State College, I'm guessing. Evergreen it's, State College. Guessing it's public. I'm going to check. Um, but it, it's very small, and they actually, it seems like they don't have majors. It's pretty, like, free form in terms of, you know, what you study, who you yeah. study with, what professors you have, things like that. But um, this conflict stems from the college's day of absence, a tradition in which black people leave the campus to show what the place would be like without them. Okay. This year, organizers suggested the reverse, that white people who wanted to participate would leave while non-whites stayed, and both groups would attend workshops to, as the email announcement put it, explore issues of race, equity, allyship, inclusion, and privilege. Okay. 
So, and in an email to his colleagues, Professor uh, Brett Weinstein, who is white, said that when black people decided to leave, it made sense as a forceful call to consciousness. But to ask white people to leave, he wrote, quote, is a show of force and an act of oppression in and of itself. And then he wrote, I would encourage others to put phenotype aside and reject this new formulation. Um, and basically, he got a lot so of So people got mad at, at him, him. not at, him. at the switch. Yeah, not yeah, not not at the switch at him. Like he had to I think he still technically it seems like employed by the college but he had to like leave the campus, you know, and hide out like and his family was okay. fearing for their safety. There was a lot of okay. like a lot of people were very mad and upset and protesting. Unsurprising, and, but I'm surprised that people weren't mad at the original switch. Okay. I'm trying to follow along where people get outraged. Sometimes yeah. I get lost. I'm sure there were there could have been people mad about the original switch, but it but looks like that's been dwarf that's been but for dwarfed. different reasons. I would assume people would be mad about the switch for different reasons than he was mad. So I guess like that's all in the past now that he's made his like, yeah, public statement. It seems like whatever controversy there was about that has been dwarfed by his um, his comments. Okay. And, and so basically because of all this, um, there's been just a bunch of controversy and protests surrounding this and they had to move their commencement like 30, off, campus. off campus, 30 miles away just because of all this crazy stuff going on. And, um, and I guess looking at it, there are a lot of parties you could talk about here. You could talk yeah. about, the, you could talk about the university and just their, the initial tradition of the day of absence, switching it, Try, you know, yeah, putting it the reverse, and then what the professor did, and I guess just evaluating who you know who was failing and who was passing on those, or and I, I guess you could also say the protesters as well. Yeah, if the you people wanted. protesting back. Oh, yeah, there's a lot of players. Damn. Yeah, there are a lot of angles to this. So, which one would you prefer that we took? Um, or it, we could be here all day, <laughs> which could. is also okay. <laughs> um, I would say. The two most interesting ones, maybe, are to focus on the switching yeah. element and then the professor. Well, I think the switching element doesn't make any sense, but I don't necessarily think it's, like, ill-intentioned. It would be like saying, like, all men stay home from work on Women's Day to show what the workplace would be like without men. And I guess it, like, it could have a similar effect in being, like, if it, and I'm, I'm unfamiliar with this school entirely, but like for example, if you like made it voluntarily for white kids to stay or to leave, I guess you could be like, wow, look how few students are left in the classrooms or something. Yeah, but it would depend on the demographics of the school in that sense, and I don't know them. Yeah, I mean it's interesting because with having like black students leave, you're you're harkening back and remembering back to a time when, when that, they wouldn't have been allowed to. They be wouldn't there. have been allowed, right? And, and so I think that's a useful, to be like visually representative of that, and right? Being like, look, like that, it would be worse without us here, right? And it's a useful exercise. I, I mean, I think obviously his use of the word oppression probably angered a lot of people. I think. He, oh, I'm sure. I think he could have expressed similar ideas and used different words. Is what I think he was getting at, or what I would get at if I was not in favor of this switch, is just that this, what they're trying to recreate or, or create is not something that has ever existed. Yeah, it doesn't, it's not like a real thing. 
I just like I, I would want to know like what people thought about that in the beginning and like what the vibes on campus were and also it's just interesting that they had it they have an annual day of absence yeah anyway. this is a tradition like it's a tradition I would want to know like what students thought about that in general and I would want to know on both sides because I can't like say for certain how on earth I would feel as a person of color being like oh now I have to participate in like day of absence like maybe you don't want to like you know like i feel like maybe you want to not have that be a tradition or like on the flip side i don't i don't know i think it's like such a complicated thing what i will say is that i think whenever anybody says anything and their family starts getting death threats then i'm on their side a little bit because i think that especially like with outrage culture and people like that is not a statement that warrants death threats. That is not a his yeah. his statement is not one that warrants death threats. It's not one that warrants like massive protest. In my personal opinion, I would say the switching of what the tradition is to me is a bit of a fail. I, I don't really see. I don't get it. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it just seems like a. It just seems like a little bit of a whimsical, like, hmm, what if we did it the other way? Yeah, like somebody in an office somewhere was like, oh, I have an idea that no one has asked for and is unwarranted and unnecessary, but I have it, so I'm going to say it out loud. Yeah, and I I do think I, I might fail the professor's choice of words in terms of how he expressed himself, but I w- would pass just his general disagreement Sure, I think you should it. be allowed to oh, disagree. Oh, of course. Why not? Of course. I, I just think, like, there... I mean, talk he about said, yeah, he words. said something, like, kind of stupid. It wasn't well thought out. But he also doesn't have a speech writer, and he probably doesn't have a PR team, and he wasn't really rooting for this to, like, destroy his life, his career, or his plans. Yeah. Nor which, is it one of those situations weird. where somebody doesn't have all of those things, but then they say something so egregious that they deserve for that to happen to them anyway. Yeah. So, yeah, I would say overall I'm failing the the, the switch in the tradition and passing the disagreement and protest from the professor. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to fail the switch only because I fail to understand the logic behind it. And I'm going to pass the professor. I mean, I don't necessarily agree with what he said, but I'm, I'm certainly going to pass him, and I'm going to fail anyone who's causing family to feel unsafe. I think that's ridiculous and counterproductive. Okay, cool. Uh, that's our first story. Ida, okay, what do you so have for your story? Okay, so mine is a little bit shorter, um, I good. think. Uh, it's also from The Times, and it's from Hong Kong. A parking spot in Hong Kong just sold for six hundred and sixty-four thousand dollars. Hong Kong dollars or um, U.S. dollars? That is a good question, and shockingly not clearly defined. But I mean, either I, way, it's a lot. Of I money. assume USD because it's okay. using just a, it doesn't say Hong Kong dollars. It's using a regular dollar sign. It's reported in the Times. I would assume that this is USD. Okay. Um, also because if that's Hong Kong dollars, it becomes drastically less. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, yeah. If it becomes Hong Kong dollars, it, it'll be less than a hundred thousand. Yeah. But that's still a lot. Which would still be a lot, but I'm pretty sure it's USD. Okay. Um, it's a slab of concrete, 17 feet long and 11 feet wide. So nothing's like built on it. It's not a house. Um, and I, I'm going to say it's definitely USD because the opening line is in many places, um, six 
$664,000 can buy you a nice house. Okay. And less than $100,000 cannot buy you a nice, nice house in many places. Yeah. So, okay. Definitely USD. Um, and basically, the the article is just calling attention to prices in Hong Kong, um, which is something that's relevant in cities around the world. Like, I think London, too, um, especially with, like, the recent fire and everything going on there. Like, people just, it's, it's a very hard time to be writing about, like, the drastically inflated prices of living in cities and buying yeah. property in cities and, like, existing in cities. Yeah, Hong Kong is a really good example of, of just because it's yeah, real estate prices in Hong Kong are pretty ridiculous. Yeah, um, and and Hong Kong faces a not unique problem because I think like think Manhattan too of having nowhere to go. Like you can't expand. You know, you can't just like Shanghai, for example. Like as areas get really expensive, other areas start getting nicer and like there's build out, et cetera, and businesses move and Shanghai's now like 30 ring roads, but yeah. Hong Kong can't do that. You know? Well, yeah, Hong Kong has a lot of areas that are undeveloped, but the problem is since it's so mountainous, it's very hard to develop a lot and of those you areas. you don't want to kill the mountains because the, right. half the joy of Hong Kong is that it's both, right? It's right. city and it's nature. Right, so you just end up with yeah, it's in general a very cramped city that yeah. where space and real estate prices. Yeah, so uh, I have a I have a, a more narrowed pass or fail here. I just want us to pass or fail one thing, fail or pass, my bad. One <laughs> one thing, which is the guy who bought the parking spot. Okay. So not like I, it is interesting. Can I, can I ask where the parking spot is located um, in it's, Hong Kong? It's that makes in, a difference. Uh, yeah, let's see. I'll I'll see if I can find it. It's the guy who bought it is Quan Waiming, who is the executive director of the Huarong Investment Stock Corporation. So he's um, got the money. It's in an apartment complex on Hong Kong Island. Okay. So. Wow. Yeah, an apartment complex on Hong Kong Island. Um, the previous record was six hundred thousand six hundred fifteen thousand for a slightly smaller spot that sold last year. So the reason I want to fail or pass this guy is like he want in in very basic terms he wanted a parking spot. Probably he wanted a parking spot in his building. I would assume um, he had the money. And he used the money to buy a parking spot, which everybody is commenting on as like the most absurd thing ever, because obviously this is probably the most expensive parking spot I would hazard in the world ever in, ever in the history. history of humanity. Yeah. But like arguably within his own wealth and budget, this was something that like he could afford and then chose to spend his money on. Albeit, I think that's insane, but like, is it a fail? Does he fail that he chose to spend over half a million dollars on a parking spot if it was what he wanted to spend half a million dollars, over half a million dollars on, and he had the money to do that? Like, is it a fail? So that's my that's my pass or fail on this one. Yeah, it's one of those things also, because imagine if he's that rich and he's in Hong Kong. He's not driving this car. He's getting driven in it, most likely. Oh, almost for sure. Yeah. So unless it's like a sports car and he's into driving luxury vehicles. Yeah. So if I'm if I'm thinking of it from that perspective, I'm just thinking of like how much less expensive it would be to just 
hire a driver every day or like somewhere like someone whose car was kept somewhere well, else I mean, there's o- it's obvious that there's infinite like less expensive choices i mean right. the hong kong metro is nice and clean and infinitely less expensive than this <laughs> i would true. say so i don't know if the like obviously there's like a probably a thousand different less expensive ways he could have managed it but i'm thinking of less expensive ways that are equally luxurious and convenient well i don't know because like if this is the one that he wanted i'm weirdly defending this Mm. if this is how he wanted to spend the money i mean obviously like i would have preferred he paid off my law school loans like (laughs) i'm just saying a better a better expense and he took the fucking metro but i (laughs) but i think that like you know at the same time we're going to have to start, I mean, and perhaps we should, but to fail this guy on buying a parking spot, I think we're going to have to fail a whole lot of people on how they spend their money and, like, how much money they have. Because who knows? I mean, we don't know how much money he donates to charity. Maybe, like, the argument in my head is, like, well, he could have spent it on something better. Maybe he does. Maybe he spends millions of dollars on charity every year and he just happens to be a billionaire, in which case mm-hmm. this is, and he probably is. Then yeah. this is, you know, just something that he decided he wanted to spend his money on. Wow. This is, uh, yeah, I mean, it's hard to... It's a position I would not usually take, but I'm challenging myself to look at it from a different perspective. And I think it Which can... Which is healthy. I think it can be passable. Yeah, it it definitely can be because it's... Yeah, there are two schools of thought there. Just one, I disagree. I disagree with this as a good way to spend money. Right. Or two, people can if people have money, they can spend it whatever way they want because it's their money. Yes, and I think I'm going to fall on the if people have money, they can spend it however they want. Now, arguably, if this is what he's spending his money on and he's not contributing to greater good in any other sense, in any other way, then I'm probably going to think he's kind of a dick. But just based on the fact that, like, I think if people have money, they should be able to choose what to do with it. Mm. I'm going to pass him on buying a parking spot. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Even a $600,000 parking spot. Yeah, I guess I'll pass him, too, as long as... Reluctantly. Yeah, I mean, with the caveat, like, as long as it's not hurting him or anyone else to an extent... Yeah. That, you know, is Well, I mean, if he measurable. bought the parking spot and he's, like, not paying to send his kids to college, then I'm going to think he's a dick. There's right. a lot of exactly. situations in which I think he's a dick. And I already obviously think he's excessive. But is it really my place to tell somebody how to spend the money that they made? Not Perhaps necessarily. Not. Okay, so it looks like we're both passing this guy. Yep. For $664,000 parking space? Yes, yes, okay. it is. Well, that's 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 what we've come to here on the Failure Show. <laughs> uh, that's been uh, that's been Failure Pass. Let's uh, let's move on. Failure of the week. So let's get started with our small failures. I, I mean, as uh, I just said before, it's it's just the two of us today. It's just us. <laughs> so we'll we'll be sharing a couple of different failures, and uh, then we're gonna move on to Ida telling. My whole history of failing in the entire world. Yeah. It's fast. It's fast. <laughs> All right. Um, do you want to start with your small failure or should I start? Um, I have, I, I like have as always many, but some of them are the same as they've been in other weeks, like lighting food on fire accidentally in my toaster oven. 
Side note, really need to get a new toaster oven. Um, I lost a, a beautiful cinnamon raisin bagel. Um, but I will, I will tell one, uh, at work we film a series called Couch Time. Um, it's a weekly series that we film where we talk about issues that millennials face, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's really neat. Um, but the whole premise of it is that we sit on a couch to film this. It's called Couch Time. It's like branded and every week we sit on a fucking couch to film it. And this week, um, due to forces beyond our control, we were switching couches out of our studio. <laughs> and so the couch was supposed to be delivered Wednesday morning, which is when we film couch time on Wednesday, Wednesday afternoons. And I like kind of manage our office. And so a big part of my job is to like make sure things run smoothly and like a b and c and that you know like timing is thought of and i realized at like 4 p.m when we're supposed to be filming this that we can't film couch time without a couch and there is no couch and so like everybody's frantically like calling the fucking couch guy and we're like when's the couch guy gonna get here and like we have a couch in the office and we're like should we move the office couch into the studio so that we have a couch like because you just can't film a series called Couch Time and have everybody, like, sitting in, like, I don't know, like, fucking folding chairs. Like, it's not <laughs> it's not the same thing. Um, so the couch didn't get there until, like, 5.50, and usually we get off work at 6, so we all had to, like, stay late and rush through filming this, this Couch Time thing. Yeah. So that was my, my group failure of the week, is trying to film a series called Couch Time without a couch. Okay, that is a that is a challenge. Yeah, it's definitely not possible. <laughs> oh man, um, my failure this week is uh, yeah, and it didn't really lead to any bad consequences, but I guess it it could have. So I was on the plane yesterday, coming back from Singapore. Yeah. Hey Ben, did you go to Singapore or something? <laughs> no, no, I don't. Have I have I mentioned this on the podcast yet at all? Just a bit. Yeah. Um, and I was getting some stuff out of the overhead bin and I was working on my computer and then I wasn't, I wanted to put it away right. after I was done with it. So I went and I, I put my computer away and then I went to the bathroom. Okay. Um, These are normal plane activities. Right. Um, and so I just quickly went to the bathroom. I came back like several minutes later and then I realized when I came back, I had not closed the overhead bin. <gasps> no. And yeah. no one did it for you? Yeah, no one did it for me. I mean, it wasn't, those guys. it wasn't that long. I had just gone to pee, but it was easily, like, it was probably at least, like, two, two at least two minutes. I probably. like that we're getting a really good timeline of how long it would take. Well, to I, had to, I had to get I had to get there. Okay, and, two minutes? Like, I could probably pee a solid two minutes. I hydrate a lot. Have yeah. I mentioned that on the podcast? Well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I had to walk a little bit to get to the bathroom. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. vacant. It was long enough that someone should have probably stood up and closed the fucking overhead bed. Right, or a flight attendant would have seen it. And like it's because it's pretty easy to see if one overhead bin is open. It's not difficult, right? <laughs> so I was pretty surprised that no one had closed it. I, I didn't do it on purpose, obviously. I didn't realize I had left yeah. it open. But yeah, I just thought like if there had been turbulence in those two minutes, like hell, like my luggage could have fallen out. Ben's and, like, face, nailed as somebody. he says, if there had been turbulence, is like the best fucking thing. He looks horrified, like just completely horrified. No, yeah, it would have been bad. Yeah, just bad. yeah, yeah. Just I'm just picturing. You know, my 
you know, little Did suit. people look furious when you returned? No, I don't think anyone noticed. Well, you know, it happens. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm just glad that, you know, the suitcase didn't fall out and nail some, like, six-year-old Chinese lady. So am I. In the head. So you know? am I. So, <laughs> crisis averted. All right. There. Okay, so those are our little failures of the week. Now, I, I we can kind of take the format of the rest of this show, rest of this episode, whatever way you want in okay. terms of telling your story. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, uh, oh. I, I like always try and coach people through this when they come on as guests. Like I'm like, Oh, it's fine. Like just say the three most interesting things that have ever happened in your life and how they relate to failure. And now I'm like kicking myself. Cause I'm like, shit, that is bad advice. Like that is not <laughs> easy to follow or helpful at all when you're trying to think of this. Yeah. Um, I guess I've had I've had a lot of failures in my life. I've had many. I'm definitely not someone who had to consult friends to be like, have I ever failed? Um, I have failed many, many times. Um, I have failed in relationships. I have failed at doing what I now ultimately am going to do, which is go to law school. I've failed at applying to law school. Um, I've failed at deciding to go to law school for like many years. Um, I don't know. I mean, where do you want me to start? (laughs) Well, I mean, maybe we can start with the whole law school thing since that's yeah. that's kind of the little key arc in your life right now that's about to it change. Is a, it is a key arc in my life. Um, so I've, I've always wanted to do something like big. Like I, so I guess like my definition of failure um, has always been very self-imposed. Like I didn't grow up in a family where there were harsh like, if you don't, you know, whatever, then you're a failure. Um, and that is mitigated by the fact that I also grew up in a family and a part of the world where it was very, very easy to be a success. So I would say until I was 18, I had zero experience with failure. Um, I like, I was the smartest kid in school, albeit like some of those years I wasn't in real school. So I'm just saying I was smarter than one of my brothers. Um, but when I was home, I was homeschooled from till fifth grade. Um, and then I went to like weird school and like, it was always very easy to be smart. I like tested in and I was in like gifted classes, but we're talking like public schools in small town, Mississippi. So like, doesn't take a lot. Yeah. Like I, I don't mean to be like rude to anyone there, but there's a reason that like, you know, there's always that like one star student. And honestly, if you're lucky and I was, and your parents are well educated and mine were, and they value education and mine did then it's really not hard to be like smart so I was like the smart kid I was athletically talented once again not the most competitive environment so easy to be at the top um and I made it all the way through to 18 and I was like winning awards pretty much across the board because that that was not that hard to do I emphasize that because as soon as I stepped out of small town Mississippi I started failing and I continued to fail, I would say, until right now. Um, But, but like, you know, a lot of people have like these impressions of failure from being a kid, and I like, I did not fail, Uh, not in a way that had like massive impact on me. Um, And then I got to university and I consistently failed across the board. I tried out for things and didn't get them, I auditioned for things and didn't get them. What kind of Um, things? 
I wanted to be in this like very prestigious debate society that was a huge thing on grounds for us. Um, and it was like, you know, historical and impressive and all of that. And, um, and I like tried twice to get it. Uh, uh, you have to like do interviews and group interviews, etc. Um, and I was apparently inflammatory because I called like when they vote on it, like people like stood up and spoke both in, in, like for me and against me. And I was, I was like so confused that after, like I didn't know these people, that people were like, I was both confused that they were for me and that they were against me. I was like, why? Why are they either of those things? But, but isn't that what you would expect from a debate society? It is, in retrospect, it really is. <laughs> of course they did that. But in my head, I was like, why is everyone not just really apathetic about me? Like, good God, <laughs> that's what they should be. Um, let's see, I... Like, I tried out for a lot of comedy stuff, and eventually I got it, but, like, not the first time. Um, I got a C in a class, in a law class. Um, I'm already accepted, so I can, like, admit that now. Plus, they have my transcripts. They know that this happened. Um, but I got, like, my first C in a class. Uh, my Chinese teacher told me I should stop studying Chinese because I wasn't very good at it. That was ultimately what I majored in, so, like, that was a pretty big failure. Um, I didn't date anyone for like two years. Uh, I, I thought I had fallen in love with a guy who was like really Christian and told me that my friends were bad friends and that jaywalking was like a sin and you were going to go to hell for it. So that was a lapse of judgment there. Mm. Um, it was just like college was a lot of failure. It was a lot of fun. It was a lot of good. But it was also like these moments that I think of as like critical moments of being like, I wanted that and didn't get it. Or like, I tried for that and fucked it up. Um, or like, I loved a guy who thought jaywalking was a mortal sin. Um, and being like, wait a minute. Like, I wish I'd had some of those in like fifth grade and not at 2020, you know, it would have wow. been nice. Wow. That... I, I didn't. I didn't know that you had dated a guy that thought Jay Walker. I didn't date water. him. I did, he didn't want to date me. This is the other part of the failure. Oh, so I guess I unsuccessfully pursued someone <laughs> who thought jaywalking was a mortal sin. Yeah. Like let's, I can see why you don't tell people that very often. Yeah, no, I don't bring <laughs> I don't bring it up that much. I worked. And I, I, I say this with a lot of respect and love for many um, people in my life who are still very religious uh, and are some of my closest friends, but this guy mailed me a Bible when I worked at summer camp and still wouldn't make out with me, so... Mailed you a... He mailed me a Bible. Again, it's it's a, it's ironic because it shows a level of, of care and commitment to someone to send them a Bible, but also the fact that he sent you a Bible... He sent me Should like a, a handwritten that... letter and a Bible. And I think a man could not be more clear about not wanting to sleep with you than sending you a Bible. Right, exactly. I, I think like, but uh, it took me, I'm not kidding, about a year and a half to put all of this together. Yeah. Wait, what did it say in the handwritten letter? I, I'm not going to share that on okay. this podcast. Okay. That's fine. Let's just say it, was, it wasn't romantic. No, it wasn't. I think he was very much so, like, I um, I have anxiety, and I think he very much so, like, wanted to save me as a person, and I think he also wanted to convert me to, like, Christianity, and I don't think I put together that the attention that I was getting from him was, like, him literally trying to proselytize. Yeah. I think I was like, oh, he likes me, um, and I don't... Years later, yeah. I'm able to be like, no, honey, that's not what that was. But 
Yeah, I think sometimes it's hard to see sometimes like you just interpret any sort of attention yeah, as like, absolutely. oh, this person's romantically interested in me. When they're when depending on what they've done, there could be many other explanations. Many, many other explanations. And I'm notoriously this is something I have always failed at, notoriously bad at telling if someone is interested in me. So much so to the point that I no longer even try. I yeah. either just directly ask um, or I like message friends and I'm like, is this person interested in me? And they're like, no, I know him. Like he's both gay and married. And You're I'm like, like okay, oh, thank okay. You. Like, good. Thanks for clearing that yeah, up. I'm also not good at figuring that out, <laughs> picking up on the, no, right, it's, the right cues. And... I'm terribly bad at it. Um, but yeah, so I failed, I failed a lot in university in, in so many different ways. I, I failed at getting a job as a waitress. Um, I worked a lot. I worked 30 hours as an undergrad, 30 hours a week, which was a lot. Um, yeah, that is. And helped pay for school. So I, I, that was good, but it was a lot. And I tried to get a job my fourth year, like an extra job to save money for postgrad as a waitress at this like restaurant on the corner, which is the spot near like my university. And I just remember my interview, the guy was like, so how do you feel about cleaning up vomit? <laughs> And I was like, I don't like it. Does anyone? Like, I was like, I'll do it, but I'm not like a fan. Like, I wasn't really sure what the right response was. Apparently you didn't have the right response. No, I didn't. But like, who, what are you supposed to fucking say in that interview? Like, I love cleaning up vomit. It brings me joy. Like, I was like, yeah, if somebody pukes like in the bathroom or something, like, sure, if it's my job, I'll clean it up. But I'm not like gung-ho about vomit. Like, (laughs) (laughs) obviously it was the wrong answer. I did not get that job. So just... Just a cacophony of failure was wow. what undergrad was. Um, and I loved college, so it was fine. But definitely can look back and easily remember many. Yeah. Well, yeah, a lot of, a lot of different things mixed <laughs> in there. Those were, those were a lot of things I had not heard about you. Yeah, well, there's probably a lot more that you haven't heard I'm about sure. me. I'm um, sure. So, and the, yeah. <laughs> and so I guess in, in the context of all of that, how did your, you know, pursuing the, the dream of going to law school fit in, fit into all of those things? I would love to say that failing at so many things made me better at it or like, you know, like now I embrace it and I see failure as a good thing or like something I learn from. Um, that is not how I look at failure. I don't think... I would like to. I think that's like the very trendy pop culture Zen way to think about like fucking things up or failing at things. Um, I I don't think that. Uh, and now, like with law school, I I came to a realization probably my third year of college that being a lawyer was going to be a path to a lot of jobs I was interested in. Um, like. There's a lot of different aspects of law that are fascinating to me. I'm very detail oriented. Um, I like rules. Um, <laughs> I like language. I like semantics. I like argument. I like debate. There's a lot of a lot of things that fall into the venue of being a lawyer that are appealing. Um, I also like money, so like <laughs> we'll see if I get there in my current path. But um, so I, I started studying for the LSATs my fourth year of college. I took them after graduation. Um, I did fine. Like I. I did perfectly fine on them. Um, 
And then I didn't go to law school. The plan was never to go directly to law school. I had been accepted into Teach for China and into Teach for America. Um, so I was trying to decide which of those two life paths to do, which sound a lot more similar than I think that they are. <laughs> they are different. Yeah, there's like a one word difference and everything else. Um, yeah. Teach for America is more prestigious for starters. Um, it has like a lot more clout that goes along with it. If you say you did Teach for America, people are usually like, ooh, like whatever. Mm. They have opinions, if yeah. nothing else. Um, for sure. And I remember like getting Teach for America and being really excited and thinking I was going to do it. And then I also got Teach for China, which is less prestigious, less well-known, um, less put together, less well-supported, less well-paid, like many, many things that were less, I think. Um, but it's also in China, uh, which is more interesting and more unique. And there were a lot of things there. So I was going to pick one of the two and then go to law school. That was the plan. Um, I ultimately like got placed as an art teacher in Mississippi with Teach for America. Mm -hmm. I'm from Mississippi. I would have loved to teach art and I would have loathed living back in Mississippi. Um, just wasn't ready to go back yet. So I went to China. The natural alternative right the only <laughs> other choice a person the only has. other choice and i i do like i i majored in chinese i spoke chinese it didn't it wasn't like a ridiculous thing to do um and it wasn't like entirely on a whim but i, I went to china um and i kind of failed at teach for china too to be honest it's a two-year program and i did it for one year um there were mitigating reasons why but like when I explain them, it, it sounds very defensive about why I left. Um, so suffice it to say, like, a lot of other people also chose to leave when I did, but some people chose to stay, and I was not one of the people that chose to stay. Um, so I, I failed at that, too, in a way. Um, wow. This is harder than I thought it would be to talk about failure. I mean, you thought it was gonna. You thought it was gonna be easy, or? Um, I don't know. I make other people do it every week. I thought it would be, yeah, easier. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's a. Uh, it's uh, it's weird sitting in the guest chair instead it is of the weird. host. Chair. I even sat in you, a different chair. I was gonna say she actually has sat. In I a different have chair. sat in a different chair. I was trying to put myself in the guest position. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah. And so while I was in Teach for China, I was studying for the LSATs to take them again. Um, I had done fine, and I hold myself to an excessively high standard, which leads to a lot of failure. So like for me, if I wasn't in the top 5%, I viewed it as not doing well, which I realized is elitist and um, like counterproductive, but I, that is the standard I was holding myself to, and so I was like, I need to take them again. Um, right. And so I was studying for them. Um, and then when I left Teach for China, I came to Shanghai and I did take the LSATs again. And <laughs> it's, I, I remember this now, there was like a weird hold on my account because I had applied for a fee waiver for applying to law school. So when my LSAT score came out, I couldn't check it 
until my fee waiver paperwork had been processed. And I had taken the LSATs with my then boyfriend and he got his score. He woke me up, I remember at like one in the morning and he was like, oh my God, like the scores were released, the scores were released. And we didn't know I wasn't gonna be able to check mine. So he woke me up at one in the morning and was like, the scores are released. And he scored in like the 90, I'm not kidding, the 99th percentile. Wow. Like he scored like three points above the Harvard average. And so like he is checking and like telling me that he's done so well and he took it on a whim and like I am checking and I can't get my score, but I know that I didn't do as well as he did already. I just can't tell how much, like how bad the differential is. And I just had this crushing moment of like inadequacy where I was just like, oh my God, like I'm not, like I know I didn't get in the 99th percentile. So I'm definitely gonna be on the lower end of whatever this comparison is. And it's a really unfair comparison in general. And I, like, it took, like, another six weeks for me to be able to check my score. Oh. Yeah. So for just six weeks, I was like, I know I'm not as good as he is. I just don't know how not (laughs) as good I am. Um, And that was was pretty rough. That was, like, a rough six weeks on the path to law school. Yeah, because you don't even... Because I didn't even know if I was going to be, like, have done better or, like, have, you know, be in the range of being able to go to these schools. Right. You can't evaluate your options of, you know, what's what's a reach school, what's a match. Right. So he's like, would I rather go to Harvard or Yale? And I'm like, you know, like, will the University of Mississippi accept me? I don't know. Like, right. <laughs> Um, we'll have to see. And finally, I got my scores. So, and it was fine. It was fine. I'd gone up, like, you know... Uh, an N amount of points for my original score. I don't know why I'm being cagey about this. Um, the first time I took it, I was like 85th percentile. The second time I took it, I was 90th. Okay, that's so definitely that's like good. Like normal people would look at that and be like, "That's a good LSAT score. Like that will get you into a good law school. It's a great score." I looked at it and was like, it's not the 99th percentile, so I must suck. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And that was like a really bad way to look at it. That was a negative way to approach law school in general. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, I feel like Ben doesn't know any of this stuff about me, so it's a little weird to be like, here are things. Yeah, I mean, I know, yeah, I mean, I knew little parts or vague details of some of these things, but... But it, it is interesting to hear, and I, and I know that, yeah, just having someone in your life like that, that you have to inevitably are going to compare them yourself yeah, yeah, to is, is tough. Um, and I put so much, it was a bad year, um, and I like put so much pressure on myself. I applied to 14 law schools. That is a lot. Um, it is a lot. And I also had just like a bad way of looking at it. Like everything was like we we had applied to I think eight of the same law schools. So everything was a comparison, which is the easiest way to fail at something is to just hold yourself to somebody else's standard instead of your own. So like I didn't get into, you know, Harvard and he did. And I was like, oh, my God, like I'm a fan. And it was like, well, like a lot of other people got into Harvard and more other people didn't. And instead of holding myself to like a normal human standard, I was like, I'm going to compare myself to one person and that's going to be how I judge whether I'm doing well or not. Yeah. Don't do that people. It's a bad way to do it. Um, but we all do. <laughs> but we all do. 
So I applied to 14 schools. I got into three. I overshot, obviously, with my applications. Um, and I got lucky on some stuff. Like Columbia waitlisted me. Hmm. Columbia probably shouldn't have waitlisted me. Like I was like, let's just be real. I was 90th percentile. Columbia is like a 97 to 100th percentile range. Like that's just how law school works. Yeah. Um, and like they waitlisted me and then they double waitlisted me. So like they kept me holding on for the whole year. Uh. Um, and I got like scholarships to schools and visited them and just... Law school, like applying to law school is very different from applying to undergrad. Um, and I, in the process of the year, lost track of why I had applied to law school, what I wanted to get out of law school, the whole reason I was going to go. And for me, it became entirely about like, did I get into a good enough school? And like, was it impressive enough? And was I like winning? I don't know what I was winning <laughs> against, but I was definitely like focused on like, am I winning at this? And like, am I doing like the, am I the best at this instead of being like, here are the reasons I want to go to law school. And I just lost track of all of it. I don't know. What did that, so did that process just teach you to not compare yourself to other people and, and to focus on what you can control or like what, do you see any lessons that you learn from that yeah. that are helping you going forward? Yeah, I like to imagine that it's a lesson that I'll be able to hold on to. I feel like I'll probably repeat this a few more times in life before I get it right. But um, basically what happened is everything crashed and burned, right? Because that's what happens when you hold yourself to impossible standards. You don't achieve them, right? Um, and I had a moment, I want to say in February, like an epiphany of a moment or something. I was visiting law schools. Um, I was like not happy with them. I wasn't happy with like any of it. Um, and I just had a, I had a moment in New York in Central Park on a bench. It was very like poetic. My life should be a movie. No. Um, <laughs> but I had this moment where I was like, oh, I can't go to law school this year. Mm -hmm. And I was, I was visiting Fordham, um, which is a great law school. It's right by the park. And they had offered me like a substantial amount of money. So it would have made sense to go. And I like, I had gone and I had sat in on a class about semantics of language and law, which is like, for me, basically porn. Um, and <laughs> I was like, so into it. And then I like, I went and I walked around and I just, I thought about like why I had picked the cities I'd picked for law schools and why I'd picked the schools and how I was looking at it and like what I was um, doing. And I just like remember sitting on this bench and being like, oh my God, like you can't go to law school this year. Like you can't, you can't accept this spot. You can't go. Um, like you did this wrong. like. Why did you come to that conclusion, or what um, was it that? Because, got like, you to that point? I just, I just had a realization that for the whole year, the way I had been approaching it, like, the reason I want to study law is because I'm really good at yelling on behalf of other people. Mm -hmm. um, like, I'm aces at it. Like, I'm good at, I, I am good at being yelled at. I'm good at like holding on to a principle. I'm good at taking the heat for someone else, or like being like, hey, fuck you, like. <laughs> you're whatever. 
Um, and there's a lot, I mean, there's a lot of minutia in there and there's a lot of specifics with like Asian law and human rights law and international law that I'm particularly fascinated in and want to study. Um, but when I was on that bench and I was thinking about law school, like all I was thinking about was like, A, myself, like I had lost track of the whole reason I wanted to study law and B, like, um, this is a very embarrassing story to tell in retrospect. Um, I was just thinking about like, well, what will my life look like in law school? Like, will I be able to have a nice apartment? Like, will people be impressed when I say the name of my school? Mm. Which is like not a reason to go to school. You should not go to school so that people will be impressed if you say like, oh, well, I'm at Harvard. Like, it's a bad reason to go to school. Harvard's a great school, but you shouldn't be there because you want people to like be impressed. And, um, and I just like... I just couldn't go and I like had this realization and that realization led to breaking up with my boyfriend, moving out of my apartment, quitting my job, like just it led to a whole lot but it was just a moment where I realized like you fucked this up, um, like you did it wrong, you applied wrong, you, you like approached the entire process of what I ultimately do want to do but I had just approached the whole thing from a really bad perspective. And for me, that was like a failure. It was not that I hadn't gotten into school. It was just like my entire purpose behind how I had done this process was wrong. Wow. So after applying to 14 law schools yep. and, you know, getting into some good ones, you just kind of had this realization and put your dream on hold. On hold. I needed a year. I remember telling my boyfriend, um, he, he of course was going to go, he'd gotten into some great schools. Um, and I remember telling him like, I just need a year. And he, he understood. I mean, he's a, he was a great guy. Um, but I like, I was like, I can't, like, I just, I need a year to think about it. Like I need a year to like reconsider how I had applied and like what I had done. I was like, maybe I need more than a year, but I definitely need a year. Mm -hmm. um, and I can't go this year. And he understood, I mean, like a lot. I don't think other people did. And it was funny cause like we had to break up as a result. Um, but I think he was still like the most understanding of anyone else. Cause I think he had lived and like watched this year happen for me. And so he like understood when I said like, I did this wrong, he wasn't like, what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> you got a scholarship. Everything's great. Like, he was like, yeah, like, I love and care about you. And I've watched this year be a massive struggle for you. And, like, I understand where you're coming from. And this makes sense. And you should do what's right for you. And I think my mom was like, what do you mean you're not moving back to America right now? Yeah. So, um, so I came, I came back to China with a very different perspective. I hadn't actually quit my job yet. Um, and I went back to my job and I realized everybody there didn't like their jobs and I had a moment at lunch and it was another like sort of follow up epiphany moment where I was like, I have to quit this job. Everyone is miserable and I don't want to be miserable. Paid really well. So I took a, I took about a 40% pay cut and took a job that I liked and reevaluated why I wanted to go to law school um, and what I wanted to do. And that was about a year and a half ago. <laughs> wow. And so then from there you reapplied during the next secretly. cycle, right? <laughs> yeah, I secretly reapplied. Um, I didn't want to do it again the same way. I didn't want the pressure of like status and titles and whatever. So I did a lot of research. I 
reminded myself of why it is I want to go to law school to begin with. And then I, um, I applied to one school without telling anyone. So the exact opposite of when I applied to 14 schools and told everyone. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That is ex- yeah, exactly the opposite <laughs> approach. Yeah, it is. And, and so was your, was your thought process that if I don't get into this one school that I just, I'm not going to law school this year, I'm not going to law school ever, or what, um, like, what was the thinking behind that? Yeah. Well, I guess technically I applied to two. Um, I applied early decision to a school that was going to let me know in like two weeks if I'd gotten in or not, and I didn't get in. Um, and then I had to like rethink about it. Like, do you really want to go this year? If you really want to go, like still without telling anyone. Um, and then not telling anyone I like to imagine comes from a place that isn't fear, but I think it was fear of failure. Um, like I had already done this whole big, I'm going to go to law school and then failed at going, not necessarily failed at getting in, but I had failed at going and being a law student. Um, yeah. And so I didn't want to do that again. I didn't want to have to like fail again at that publicly to people. Um, and sorry, what was the question? Oh, um, it, it, I guess for you, was I, I not what gonna was the, go yeah, what was the I thought process beyond doing it differently than you did before? Um, what was the thought process if, if I don't get in? Am I just not going to go this year? Am I not going to go ever? Like, well, what was it about just applying to one school? Yeah, so the one school reason, um, it's University of Washington in Seattle, um, and it's because they were a good school. They fit my demographics of GPA and LSAT, and I was trying to be more realistic. Um, they had actually rejected me the year before. They had waitlisted really? me. Yeah, they had waitlisted me and then turned me down. Um, so it was a little bit of a risk, and I didn't want to tell people – especially like since I figured there was a low percentage chance of me getting in. So I actually Mm. applied to this school assuming I was going to be rejected. And that was a big part of why I did not talk about it because I wanted it to not like, I wanted to be rejected quietly and be able to just like go out and get drunk with friends and not mention why it was happening and just like eat that embarrassment. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it would have been the last time I applied I like to imagine it wouldn't have been, but it might have been. Um, it's a lot of rejection, so I don't know. Like, rejection letters suck. <laughs> I like to imagine I'd be like, no, this is my dream. I would have pursued it no matter what, but it's hard to say what would have happened if the email had said, like, we regret to inform you instead of, like, congratulations. Um, right. I, I did not take the LSAT again. I thought about it. I thought about like trying to do it again and getting like 95th percentile or something. So I could have gotten into the slightly better school. Um, but I didn't want to approach, I didn't want to start off approaching an application season in the same mindset of like what matters the most is the impressiveness of where I'm going. Yeah. So I decided not to take the, not to take the test again and to secretly apply to one school. <laughs> As one does. Right. So you... You, you applied to this one school, University of Washington, you got in, and then you kind of covertly and slowly broke the news to people in your life. Yeah, I told people slowly. Um, I mean, I lo- so the joy of taking the year and the thing that did result from that like epiphany on the bench was that I really did need that year. 
Um, I took, I ended up taking a job that I love. I got back into comedy, which was a thing that I hadn't been doing, um, that I'd done for years previously, but I hadn't been doing in China. Uh, I got back into like a lot of things that I, that just like mattered to me, um, that I hadn't been doing. And so it was a year that was really good. And then when I got into law school, when I, when I got the email, I knew I was going to go. There wasn't a moment where I was like, there was no like period of being like, oh, like now what do I do? Um, but it was still really scary because I was going to have to like quit a job I love, quit a comedy club that I love, like quit friendships. I, not quit them, but like leave a comedy club that I love, leave a job that I love, leave friends that I love, leave a country that I love. Um, and I, I told people sort of slowly. It was a gradual process. Like I told my boss, I told my friends, I told my mom, and my mom was like, Seattle might as well be as far away as Shanghai. And I was like, yeah, that's obviously not true, mom. Like not even a little bit. But yeah, it's a, d- but it's it's a still domestic really, flight. It's, <laughs> it's still really far from home for me. I've never been a yeah. West Coast person. And that's true. My family is all in the South, so it's still far. Yeah, yeah, might might as well still be in China. That, that was not quite the response you were looking for, I assume. No, but it seems like it kind of it didn't. That response didn't really matter to you as much. Um, is that? It was interesting. While I still wasn't telling people, there was like a brief period where I wanted I wanted my boss to be the first person who knew. So there was like a, a short period where I wasn't telling people, but I realized that I still wanted to because you know, like. I often wonder with getting engaged too, this is a side note, if the most fun part of it isn't like putting it on social media, right? Mm-hmm. Because the things that people like the most, I think, on like Facebook and Instagram or like an engagement announcements, I got into school announcements, we're having a baby, baby. announcement. We just had a baby. Here is our like ugly looking child announcement. Sorry, <laughs> all babies are ugly, whatever. So there was a moment where I realized like, Oh, I really want the like praise and a you know accreditation of being like I got into law school. Like I I want the likes. I want people to be like, oh, like what a great thing you're doing with your life. Like how successful you are. And it was interesting to have to wait on that because I like to do that. I was gonna also have to quit this job that I love, and so I had to wait. Um, and I had to be the only person that knew for a while that I was going to go to law school. So it was just me knowing. Um, and I think that was like a unique way to do it because I think a lot of times you open your letter and you immediately like text all your friends or tell everyone. Um, and I actually only called the guy who lives in Seattle that I'm going to crash on his couch when I get there. And I was like, oh, hey, you're still going to be there in like August, right? <laughs> like, I didn't, I didn't, I, and then I had to like, take it back in and it was only me and I was the only person that knew. Yeah, so just the the most practical of people at the at that given time. You yeah. Know, told. So very Literally, I was like, ooh, I got in, this is Seattle. I need to make sure he's still gonna be <laughs> in Seattle. And I call, and he's a good friend, so I, I did tell one human and he was like, oh, that's great, I have to get back to work, you know, like, um, he's like a workaholic, but. Um, but yeah, it was like a different sort of way, a completely different experience than the first time I'd done it. Um, because the first time I'd done it, I had gotten to be, you know, like, woo, exciting. I got into schools. Like, 
and people had been like all congratulatory um and it's a nice feeling when people are like oh like i approve of what you're doing you know like that's a good thing i'm giving you praise and you're like yes i would like that like i'm a fucking comic like i love <laughs> i love applause and laughter when people are like you're good at what you're doing um and i had to hold off on getting any of that for a little while and just be the only human that knew yeah so the fact that you did it that way and that you were able to kind of sustain through and that you ended up going, you're going through with it now, did that kind of further validate to you that it was the right decision, that you were committing to it despite the fact that you weren't, the the praise wasn't coming from outside or the, the affirmation wasn't coming from outside, it was kind of coming from within you being like, and I also know this. from my email inbox, which said congratulations. Right. <laughs> that and just from you being like, I know this is the right decision for me. I'm going to wait to tell people because it doesn't matter yet that they know. Yeah. I think the best part still is the lack of panic. Um, like, I'm a panicky person. I panic about everything. Like, I panicked that I had to go to dinner last night because I was like, what if I do it wrong? And then it's like, um, you've eaten dinner before. Like, I think you'll be fine. <laughs> but um, but I, I, you know, I panic about my future. I panic about my choices. I, be, I see failure in everything that I do constantly, and I worry about failing at, like, the most mundane things in the whole world. Um and I think with this, you know, it's something where there's so much opportunity left for failure. Like I could fail classes, I could fail the bar, I could fail at law school, I could fail at making new friends in a new place, I could fail at finding an apartment in my budget. Like, boy, I have a list of things I could fail at. Um, it's good to be optimistic. Yeah, but uh, but I don't have the panic that goes with that. Like I no longer, I don't because I took the year, because I failed so hard at becoming a law student, um, I don't have the panic of like, how am I possibly going to do this? I mean, I still like sometimes have that thought. Um, but there's also a part of me that's like, you'll just do it. Like you, this is just like, this is what you want to do. This is what you're doing. Like you're actively doing this. It's going to be fine. Um, and yeah, I think because I've had so much experience in the last seven years at failing hard at everything. I do, I do, in a big picture sense, like I don't think I'm not gonna fail at anything and that it's not gonna suck for the next three years, but I think that like in a big picture sense, I, I can look at it and be like, yeah, like I will fail at things and it will be okay. Like I will fail at probably like being great at some of these classes and like that will be fine because I've failed at being great at classes before and like I'll probably fail at like getting every single prestigious externship I apply for and that'll be okay because like I haven't gotten jobs before and like that'll be fine or like I might fail at a relationship sorry boyfriend who might be listening to this but like that would you know it would not be ideal but like I've done heartbreak before and like gotten back up, you know, like it just, I think that once something happens to you, you're less scared of it happening again. Yeah. I, yeah, I totally understand that. I mean, I, um, you know, definitely like with me losing my job, <laughs> like, you know, the second time, despite the fact that I was across the world away from everybody I knew, it was way easier because yeah. I, I had seen myself overcome it once before already. Yeah. So I think you're thinking that same way about a lot of things in your life yeah. right now. Um, the big scary thing is that law school is really expensive. And that's when I haven't done before is mm. 
that's like the the biggest like I'm like if I fail at this I will also be a little bit poor <laughs> um I've always been poor but I'll be like you know in debt poor which will be new um so yeah. that's my that's the one that I approach with like the most fear um is not like what if I'm bad at law school or what if I like can't make friends like it's like what if I never pay my debt off um and I that's the one where I have to tell myself to like be optimistic and not panic about things that aren't right now because I'm not failing at it right now so there's no point in like embracing potential future failure and holding on to that which I tend to do yeah and it's it's just something that you have at the moment, no control. Well, over. right. Like, I have a minimum of three years before I need to start worrying about that. There's no reason to hold on to that piece of potential failure for the next three years. So that's yeah. my current failure challenge is to not do that. <laughs> wow. I mean, yeah, that's it's a, it's a big... A big challenge to not let... Yeah, not let those potential future stressors... Yeah. that's always been my worst thing with failure to me like people will be like yeah failure sucks when you're failing but for me like the hypothetical failure is so much worse than the reality well especially if you've if you're at that point in your life that you talked about where you have never really failed before the the, and you're thinking about what it would be like if you failed yeah the 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 stress or the dread of the specter of that is usually worse than the actual it's thing kind of itself. like the anticipation of joy like there's studies that say that if you're going to go on vacation and you plan the vacation for a year and you like get excited about it and you look forward to it for a year it's a better vacation like you enjoy it more hmm. than if you just like happen to have a week off and you're like oh i'll go to bali for a week it's not as good it's not like it doesn't bring as much pleasure as if you like know for six months that you're going to go to mm-hmm. Bali and you get really excited and then you mm-hmm. go to Bali and in Bali you actually have more fun because you like planned and you were excited. I'm like that, but with failure. <laughs> <laughs> I do the I do the reverse of that where I'm like, you know, like the fit, the anticipation of in three years I could fail is so much worse than like, oh, right now, like I failed at something. So that, that's my, that's my failure challenge that I'm still trying to break. I'll let you know if I figure it out. <laughs> okay. Well, no, that was, that's great. We're, I guess we're maybe running a little low on time, but is there anything else from, from your life or, <laughs> or from failure that you didn't get to share that you still want to uh, talk about? Um... I don't know if I've ever told this story on the podcast, but I guess I did fail once prior to 18. Okay. When I was in high school, I decided on a whim, maybe I'll want to be in a musical because my younger brother was in musicals and I was like, this could be fun. Um, But to be in a musical, you have to be able to both sing and dance and I can't do either of those really. So I like... (laughs) I auditioned for our high school's musical, and I sang Happy Birthday as my audition song, and I literally didn't even get a spot in the chorus. And we've already covered that it was pretty easy to be pretty good at things in my (laughs) high school environment. Um, And I was like, varsity captain of four things and like heads of all these things. Didn't even get like a back spot in the chorus in a in a drama production in my high school. Um, so that was my that was my like big high school failure. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah. What? Anyway, yeah. And that, Sing that, happy birthday not well. <laughs> like an off-tune version of happy birthday. Yeah. Yeah, if you choose a standard like that, you gotta... You gotta, you really, gotta really belt happy yeah, birthday. Yeah, you gotta, you gotta you belt know? the hell out of happy birthday. Yeah, to and, make I, that work. and I didn't make that work. I never put that together. Alright, well, if you've, you've come a long way from failing to be in musicals to <laughs> failing to go to law school to succeeding to going to law school. Yeah, well, and I guess there's a long way left to go. So, we'll see. <laughs> yeah, it's exciting though. Uh, cool new chapter that you're about to embark on yeah. very soon. Alright, well, thanks Ida. I'm glad you finally got to share your story after I, 17 yeah, episodes. 17 episodes later, here, here we are. <laughs> okay, um, that's been The Failure Show. Uh, if, you, if you enjoyed it, please uh, leave us a five-star review on iTunes, and if you're not already subscribed on iTunes, please do that as well. Um, yeah, that's been The Failure Show. Until next time.